Uh, Lord, we want to thank you that all of our sins have been paid for in full. Oh, Lord, how can we thank you enough? And as now we come to study what you did upon the cross again, may you open our hearts to receive truth. May you give us the strength at 6 p.m. on a Sunday night to learn and study. May we love you with all of our mind and may it change who we really are. And may this not just be head knowledge, but may it affect our very hearts. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Thanks, Jane. All right. Wonderful. Well, let's open up our outlines. We don't really need to open them up. But if you weren't here last week, you'll see... Oh, Henry, you didn't get one. Yeah. Here we go. Look, Rebs is, Rebs is on your case. You see on the background what the plan is. So this week we are on redemption, justification and reconciliation. And we're really looking at two aspects. So in systematic theology, you look at Christ's work and his ultimate work is his death and salvation on the cross. That's one half. That's um, soteriology or doctrine of salvation. And then the other half is the application of redemption. So redemption accomplished is what Jesus did objectively. And then redemption applied is what that means for you and I subjectively, what, what is applied to our life. And so um, today we're going to be looking at sort of like the mainly on the redemption applied sign. Um, and whoa, hey, 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 I like that. That's, that's easier. I can just speak more softly now. <laughs> After all the crying today, I don't have much left. So, Shocker. Um, so, yes, you can follow along there. Not every verse that I'm going to quote is there. I've got lots. I mean, obviously, to, to, we could do a whole night on each one of these. But we're going to do our best to just walk our way through. If you've got a question, just, just go for it. I'd rather just have some moments to pause. So just put your hand up. Uh, but I will pause for questions as we go through. Uh, last week, we saw that the dominant way to view what took place on the cross, the dominant image is that of penal substitutionary atonement. So that was our big word. The big major word was substitution, that Christ is in our place. Uh, and it's a penal substitution. There's a penalty that ought to be paid because of our sin, and Christ has paid it. And we looked at how on the cross he was our propitiation, that God poured his wrath upon Christ, so now there remains no wrath for us. And Christ is our expiation. He is the one that has covered over or removed our sin, and as a result, we have purification. We're actually cleansed. And I was reflecting on it during the week. It just came up in my Bible reading. I can't remember where, but just those truths came to me just because those words mean so much. And I just was reflecting, oh yes, I'm cleansed. And I was just rejoicing in that. So that was one way in which the teaching from last week just had an impact and an application in my morning. It was just that went from the head to the heart. I'm clean. I'm actually clean in the sight of God. And the great high priest has cleansed me of all my sin. And that's just a joy. So the dominant image um, is penal substitution. That's kind of really the, the framework by which everything comes in. And today we're going to look at three more images uh, that help us to investigate what happened on the cross. We're gonna, we saw last week propitiation. That's the temple image. 
This week, we're going to look at the marketplace, the courtroom, and the household. We won't get to the bonus. I was going to do the battlefield, Christus Victor, but there's not a shun there, and we've already got enough, so we won't do the battlefield. Uh, But when we think of images, um, the Bible gives us images because we need them. Um, We need, we can't just have all ideas. We need images to be able to pin things and place them and situate them in our context. Um, And John Stott says this, though. Um, These images are not alternative explanations of the cross, providing us with a range to choose from, but complementary to one another, each contributing a vital part to the whole. So these images, the marketplace, the temple, the courtroom, the family, we can't be like, well, I'm a a bit of like a family. That's the cross I like. Or (laughs) or I'm only the courtroom. Or I'm only the... No, we need them all. Um, Just like all the images of church. Bride, body, flock, vine, we need them all. And he also says, yet we must not deduce from this that to have understood the images is to have exhausted the meaning of the doctrine. Um, Exhaust the meaning of the doctrine, for beyond the images of the atonement lies the mystery of the atonement. The deep wonder of which, I guess, we shall be exploring through eternity. Um, so I don't have all my quotes up there, but that one is really important. That Don't think we've mastered anything tonight. All we're doing is like, um, oh, I can't remember where I was quoting it, but it's like ants crawling across an iPad is a quote I read. That's about as much as we understand of God. <laughs> How much an ant understands of the iPad, that's all we'll get to tonight. Um, So let's look at these images as different ways of viewing what took place. And the benefit of knowing these images is that they speak to different people in different ways. So you're trying to reach out or you're trying to counsel someone or you're trying to help um, someone you love. And you might want to pull out the marketplace or the temple or the courtroom or the family um, as different ways of helping people understand the gospel. So kids, if you are drawing anything at the back, you could draw a marketplace. Okay, a marketplace. That's our first one. So number one on your outline there, the marketplace. And that's the big word, redemption. Um, So we turn from the temple and propitiation to the marketplace, from the religious to the commercial. And this brings us into a different realm. Uh, We're not in the the temple courts anymore. We're in the in the marketplace. And specifically, we're thinking of the actually the ancient slave market. Uh, So in the ancient world, you would go down to the market and. You could actually sell yourself as a slave if you were in poverty, um, destitution. Uh, there was no Centrelink. There was no family tax benefits. There was no food trucks. It was if you had no money and you had debt to pay, you would sell yourself as a slave uh, because at least you'd have food and clothing, a household and the possibility of a good master. But also as well, there was the terrible practice of man stealing and stealing people and selling them um, on, the, on the slave market. Um, at times, parents would sell their children into slavery because they weren't able to feed them. And we, we, uh, we shouldn't romanticize it, but we also don't need to completely condemn it um, because it was a form of social movement and a way that things work together. Though I'm sure none of us would like to go back that way. So you're in the marketplace and there's you know, live animals and everything's going on. There's hawking, there's, there's everyone yelling out, bartering and trade. And then you get to the slave market. And, and the slave market is where you could pay a price to buy someone out of their slavery and actually redeem them. 
So if someone was in slavery, you could actually pay a price, if you love them, to the owner um, or to the slave owner and actually redeem them out of their slavery and bring them into freedom. Um, so the word that we use there is the ransom. This is the New Testament word. There's a the bunch of different ways it's in the Greek, um, but the word is ransom. The ransom price, um, which is the the process involving release by payment of a ransom price. That's what redemption is. The process of release of oh, sorry. The process of in, involving release by payment of a ransom. So to redeem someone, you pay the ransom and you get them out. And the reason why this is so important is because the Bible teaches us that we are slaves to sin. Jesus said to the Pharisees, Truly, truly, in John 8, 34, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. So we need someone to pay a ransom to liberate us from slavery. But this is not just a New Testament idea. This idea is replete throughout the Old Testament. Um, You'll see this word come up hundreds of times in the Pentateuch. Um, Everything, a lot of things could be redeemed. Property, animals, persons could be redeemed by the payment of a price. Uh, There was this concept of the kinsman redeemer, so a family redeemer, which was the right or duty of a family relative to have the first right to buying a property to keep it in the family. It's the story of Boaz and Ruth. Uh, so instead of the, the family plot line being given off to some other family or even another tribe, the kinsman redeemer could come in and redeem it and pay the ransom and buy that piece of land back. Every Jew, in fact, had to pay a ransom for his life at the time of a national census, Exodus 30, 12 to 16. Firstborn sons who, after the Passover, belonged to God, had to be redeemed Exodus 13, 13 and Exodus 34, 20. Someone who due to poverty sold themselves into slavery had to be redeemed to be free. Leviticus 25, 47. And therefore we see in the Old Testament and we could go on and on and on, but redemption involves a costly intervention. Redemption involves a costly intervention. And then this idea is applied not just to individual property, things like that, but to corporate Israel. Israel, we're told in Exodus 6.6, were redeemed by God's mighty and outstretched arm from Egypt. And again, from Babylon, at the cost of God's divine power being exercised in mercy towards sinful people and judgment on the nations, Israel is redeemed. Isaiah 43 verse 1 to 4 says, But now thus says the Lord who created you, O Jacob, he who formed you, O Israel, fear not, for I have redeemed you i have called you by name you are mine when you pass through the waters i will be with you and through the rivers they shall not overwhelm you when you walk through the fire you shall not be burned and the flame shall not consume you for i the lord your god am the lord your god the holy one of israel your savior i give egypt as your ransom cush and seba in exchange for you why verse 4 because you are precious in my eyes and honored, and I love you. I give men in, ex- in return for you, peoples in exchange for your life. So we see to buy back Israel, God had to pay a redemption price, and he, he trades in nations to get them back in this strange kind of way of talking. Then when we get to the New Testament, we see that the redemption language continues. 
but we see that the change moves from physical to moral plight. So when you were in slavery or if your, say your ox attacked someone and uh, killed them or injured another animal, to get that ox back, you had to pay a redemption price. So it's, it's very physical or Israel's in physical captivity. When we move to the New Testament, we're looking more at moral captivity, moral plight. And that's why Jesus said in Mark 10, 45, For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. And that word is that that ransom word. So this is where redemption comes in. The price is nothing less than the eternal Son of God. So let's look at these bullet points here, the the plight of redemption. Um, What are we ransomed from? What are we saved from? Well, it's our sin. Uh, 1 Peter 1, 18 says, Knowing that you were ransomed from the futile ways inherited from your forefathers, not with perishable things such as silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ, like that of a lamb without blemish or spot. So we're, we're stuck in our sins. We've inherited sinful nature. We've inherited sinful practices. We're, we're slaves to it. Ephesians 2 verse 1 to 3. We're slaves. And we need ransoming. We need freedom. We're freed from slavery to sin in the past. Ephesians 2, as we said. Romans 6 says, We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. So we were slaves to sin and death. Christ paid the price and now we're no longer slaves to sin and death, which is great news. That means we were once chained to sin. Now the chain is broken. We actually have freedom. We we can choose to be righteous or we can choose to sin but everyone who's not is actually chained to sin and even though they may do good deeds there's still their their wicked heart that chains them to turn every good deed into something related to self and ultimately an unfulfilling good deed because it's never in just pure worship of god we're also liberated from slavery to sin in the present titus chapter 2 verse 14 says It's talking of Christ's redemption, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession, who is zealous for good works. So the ransom or the redemption that we have in Christ now is, yes, we were liberated from sin in the past, but in the present, we're also redeemed from all lawlessness. Uh, We're actually redeemed so that we would now pursue righteousness in the present. And we're not free to just then do whatever we want. You know, Romans 6.1. Oh, should we sin so that grace may abound? No. How can you who died to sin live in it any longer? So we're freed from slavery to sin in the past. Excuse me. Liberated from slavery to sin in the present. And our bondage to corruption will be over in the future. There's redemption in the future. Romans 8.18. For I consider that the sufferings of this present time are not worth comparing with the glory that is be to be revealed to us. For the creation waits with eager longing for the revealing of the sons of God. For the creation was subjected to, note that language, to futility, not willingly, but because of him who subjected it in hope that the creation itself will be set free from its bondage to corruption 
and obtain the freedom of the glory of the children of God. For we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now, and not only the creation, but we ourselves, who have the first fruits of the Spirit, groan inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. So we await, we are redeemed from sin. Uh, We're redeemed now to live in the present and we will be redeemed in the future when finally our bodies are properly redeemed and we're liberated from the full effect of the curse. Um, the, 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 The death that reigns now still affects us and we live in between the times, the crossover, the now and the not yet. And the not yet is one day, I think we sung it today, oh, that day when freed from sinning, um, did we? I don't even know. I was listening to it at some point today. Uh, when I see him face to face, how's the rest of that hymn go? On that day when freed from sin, I will see him face to face. I'm mixing the lyrics there. But anyway, I look forward to that day. Do you know it? No, no. I was going to ask question. Oh, yeah. Okay. Yeah, go. Uh, what, what is the, like, the weight in place of confession fit with an already redeemed? Is that, is that kind of making sense? Say it again. So... There's, there's a place for confession, right. in a sense we're already redeemed, so what place does that play in? Uh-huh. Yeah. Firstly, I would just say the Bible says confess your sins. So it's, it's first up, it's, it's good. Christ taught us to pray, Father, forgive me of my sins. So we're not asking, and we'll talk about this a little bit later in justification, we're not asking for our sins to be paid for again. But I think there's a relational aspect where we're asking God to remember his justification, to not hold our sins against us again. Um, that would be one way of thinking about it. Um, does that sort of at least partly answer? It's not a full answer. Any other thoughts people got on that? I'm not super good at thinking of my feet. As I've realised while we've been answering these questions the past couple of weeks. All right, so that's the plight of our redemption. We're liberated from Satan's sin and death, past, present, future. The price of our redemption is the blood of Jesus Christ. We've already read 1 Peter 1, the precious blood of Christ. Revelation chapter 5, verse 9 and 10. Worthy are you, for you were slain, and by your blood you ransomed people for God. God, we saw last week, requires a blood sacrifice, a, a death to make atonement. There's a sacrifice must be made to have propitiation and expiation and purification. And the price of our redemption is not money, it's not time, but the very life of Christ. And death of Christ. And you'll see all throughout the Old Testament language, the blood is the life of the animal. And so blood must be shed when blood is shed. So when an animal is, when a a human is killed, then the the appropriate punishment is another human is killed, life for life. Um, And so that's that's why the blood must be shed um, of Christ, because he's giving his life to give us life. In Acts 20, 28, which we looked at today, Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. So the the church is the blood-bought people of God. The price in the market was divine blood, which is just astounding. So some application 
Uh, John Stott said, If the church was worth his blood, is it not worth our labour? One corporate way we apply the doctrine of redemption is that we give ourselves to serving the church of God. Uh, Because, yes, individually we were redeemed, but the church was redeemed too. And so if Jesus died for his people, then, oh man, is it not worth us our whole life to just give it to his people? I mean, if he was willing to, to, to leave heaven and come on earth and give everything to obtain his people, then it is no waste of your life to throw it away for the sake of the church. And individually, 1 Corinthians 6.20 Friends, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. You were bought. You don't own yourself. You were bought back. You were in slavery to sin. You were bondage to death. The blood price was paid. You brought out of the market into the freedom. So what would be the worthy thing if a slave was liberated by, well, to to honor that master, to love that master? And in fact, that's the language in Romans 6, which is a really great chapter to read on this, that we were liberated from dominion to sin, not to be totally free, but actually to now have a new master and to present ourselves to him as slaves to righteousness. Um, And so you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. He owns you, so give it all to him. That would be an application. And John Stott helpfully says this, I like this. Our body has not only been created by God and will one day be resurrected by him, but it is bought by Christ's blood and is indwelled by his spirit. Thus it belongs to God three times over, by creation, redemption, and indwelling. So if you thought, oh, does he, does he really own everything? He's like, yeah, three times. <laughs> he made you, he redeemed you, and he's given you his Holy Spirit. So give all of your life to him. So that's the marketplace. Now that's one way we look at the cross. Redemption through the price of a ransom. Questions? Lucas. Oh, good on you. I want to see them at the end. Kids, if you want to get started, next one is the courtroom. I don't even know if you know what a courtroom looks like, but give it a crack. Okay, let's have a look at the courtroom. So now, so we've been in the temple. That was propitiation last week. We've been trading in the marketplace. Now we come to the courtroom and we look at justification. Justification. Uh, The courtroom is where we will be declared legally righteous, thus codifying our freedom forever. We have this in our image, a legal proceedings with a guilty party and a judge to make judgments, or perhaps a kingly courtroom where the king is there to be the judge, because that would have been um, part of the context in their mind as well. Now, when we think about justification, there's actually lots of objections to the doctrine of justification. So before we actually jump in and look at it, I just want to look at some of the objections, just as a different way of going about it. Firstly, first objection, uh, people have an antipathy or a hatred of legal categories. Uh, people don't like the idea of God as judge and king. Uh, it's a bit yuck. Uh, God is father. And so we highlight the God as father verses. God is judge and king. We don't like them. Uh, and so people reject the idea of justification as being this legal definition or declaration. 
but God has given us the image of adoption as a separate image. It balances the image of justification um, and it makes it more... Uh, adoption gives us this familial image, which we'll get to, but still justification is a legal image. A second objection is, oh, that's just a Pauline idiosyncrasy. That was just Paul. He was like hell-bent on trying to figure out his justification with God, and he was had this really moral conscience and, conscience, and so he was very forensic, and so that was just Paul's way of looking at it. That wasn't Jesus. Jesus didn't care about justification. Uh, But Jesus spoke of the tax collector in Luke 18 as being justified. He uses that very word. And the most quoted part of the Old Testament with regards to the doctrine of atonement, Isaiah 53, and which we'll look at this a little bit later, says that he will justify many. And so when Jesus uses this son of man and suffering servant imagery, he's employing all that goes with it. So Jesus very much believed in justification. It wasn't just Paul, and it certainly wasn't just Martin Luther. Um, That's another person that gets thrown into this. It's like, well, Martin Luther was just guilty conscience. All he could care about was law, and justification is a product of the Reformation, and it's a Western civilization concept. It's not a biblical concept. Now, that's another objection. Third one, a major objection, is the entire Roman Catholic Church rejects it. Uh, And this is why we don't partner with the Roman Catholic Church, because they fundamentally have rejected the doctrine of justification as we would understand it in Scripture. So after Martin Luther um, declared and the reformers started reading the Bible, they started preaching justification by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. Uh, But then the Catholics or the, the, the church at the time, rejected that. Uh, they didn't like that. It didn't work with their teaching and it didn't work with their practice. And so they had a council called the Council of Trent where they wrote down and codified their doctrine of justification and were anti the justification by faith. In fact, they actually say, and they've never reputed this, that if anyone believes in justification by faith alone, they are anathema. That is, they are heretics. They are cast out of the church. And any time people say, oh, we're Catholics and Protestants, we should get together. You think, okay, if you repudiate that, we can talk. Uh, but until they do, it's just like, guys, you said we're anathema. So we can't work together on this issue at the very least. There's maybe some things we can work on, but there's a world of difference between how we believe what Christ has done on the cross. So for, they, for them, they say justification takes place at baptism. At baptism, you are so you, they baptize babies, you're forgiven of original sin and all future sins apart from mortal sins, which must be removed through confession and penance and things like that. So if you only commit venial sins, you're fine. Your, your, your baptism cleanses you of all of that. Uh, and then if you commit mortal sins, then you can do these certain things and pay the church back and get yourself out of purgatory, etc., etc. Justification is also not a forensic legal declaration. It's a impart or infusion of righteousness. So for them, in justification, you get infused and renewed with the righteousness of Christ, um, which is different to how we view it as well. Although it looks like we are aligned with Catholics because we use the same words, um, there's a world of difference. So John Stott, and I took a lot of this, everything tonight, by the way, is John Stott. So, I mean, it was just a great summary. I thought, oh, this will help me. He says, 
It's an oversimplification, but one may say that evangelicals and Roman Catholics together teach that God, by his grace, is the only saviour of sinners, that self-salvation is impossible, and that the death of Christ as a propitiatory sacrifice is the ultimate ground of justification. But precisely what justification is, how it relates to the other aspects of salvation, and how it takes place, these are areas of continuing and anxious debate i.e. we use the same words but mean totally different things. So we feel like, oh, we're holding hands, but actually we've got totally different ideas. What the Reformation taught us is this Latin phrase, simul justus et peccator, that we are simultaneously righteous and a sinner. And this is what doesn't make sense to people. How can you be declared righteous yet still say you're a sinner? So the Wesleyans, they, they believe and John Wesley believed in sinless perfectionism, that you, because you're declared righteous now, you can live perfectly now. You ought to be able to be perfect now. But the Bible teaches us that we're simultaneously righteous and a sinner. How does this work? Well, let's look at the doctrine of justification. Quick question first. Yeah. Um, so how did the Roman Catholics arrive at their position such a remarkably different position? Well, uh, there's, I'm no expert in this, uh, but... They obviously hold scripture and tradition as equal. So we believe that only scripture, not tradition, has authority. Secondly, their doctrine of original sin um, is, is similar to us, but they believe that what Christ did on the cross removed original sin. Um, so it's, it's called Pelagianism, um, the idea that the, the, what Christ did on the cross was he wiped the slate clean. Um, and so you can, by faith in Christ and baptism, you can have all your sins forgiven. Because did not Christ die that all might be righteous? Uh, Romans 5. And, and these languages that talk about all, I think that they pick up on. So then you have this general righteousness that is achievable through the church. Your sins are forgiven. The church has the keys of the kingdom. If the bishop says your sins are forgiven, your sins are forgiven. Um, so in baptism, it's, it's, so you get all these, like it's not a simple doctrine. It all comes together. And I think, I don't know all the pieces. I'd have to do more study on it. But uh, there's pieces that all build into a logical inference to arrive there. Um, but a lot of it's tradition, not necessarily scripture. Um, and uh, Aristotelian philosophy and uh, Thomas Aquinas' philosophy uh, from the 12th century plays into it as well. So that's as much as I can say without getting it wrong. Um, sorry, I wish I knew more. It's a good, good thing to study, though. There's one objection that it's, when I read it, was silly as anything. In <laughs> and it goes down the Wesleyan road. Oh, yeah. Yeah, it's Finney. And it was... Oh, Charles Finney. God's, God's not allowed to do that. <laughs> yep. That's a uh, thank you, Mr. Finney. Uh, um, yeah, God's not allowed to do that. Try that one out with God. Okay, so Romans chapter 3, and we've looked at this quite a few times this year already, but it's just, it's just there. It's just the best. Um, so Romans chapter 3, verse 19 through to 27. Let, let's read that and just, I won't comment on it now. I'll just give you a few points on it. The source, ground, and means of our justification. So Romans three nineteen. Now that we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. 
For by works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight, since through the law comes knowledge of sin. But now the righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law, although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. For there is no distinction, for all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. This was to show God's righteousness because in his divine forbearance, he had passed over former sins. It was to show his righteousness at the present time so that he might be just and the justifier of the one who has faith in Jesus. Then what becomes of our boasting? It is excluded. By what kind of law? By law of works? No, but by the law of faith. For we hold that one is justified by faith apart from works of the law. So the source of our justification is grace. Romans 3, 24. We are justified by his grace as a gift. It comes from God's gracious hand. We can't earn it. We don't merit it. There's no way we can attain it. Figure it out. The source is God's grace. That's where it comes from. If you think, you know, you turn on a tap, where's that water coming from? Well, it's coming from some mountain and it's flowed all the way here. Well, where does justification come from? It comes from a gracious heavenly father and pouring it out upon us. Secondly, the ground of our justification. How, what, what have we got to stand on? How can we know this is foolproof? Well, the ground of our justification is the blood. That's why verse 24 says, um, we are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. So the ground of our justification is Christ's death on the cross. We can look objectively at Christ's death on the cross and say, we can be justified. Where's your evidence? Because the sinless Savior died. His blood was shed. That's our ground. Romans 5 verse 9 puts these two together. It says, Since therefore we have now been justified by his blood, much more shall we be saved by him from the wrath of God. So we're justified by his blood. The ground of it is blood was shed. God, is, God can do that because <laughs> he's righteous and he's provided the sacrifice that he needs. John Stott helpfully says, when God justifies sinners, he is not declaring bad people to be good or saying that they are not sinners. After all, he is pronouncing them legally righteous, free from any liability to the broken law, because he himself in his son has borne the penalty of their law breaking. So justification is not you're a good person. Justification is your sins aren't counted against you because they've been paid for by someone else. So it's the opposite of condemnation. Your sins lead you to condemnation, but unless there's a mediator, but if there is, now you have justification. You can be declared free from the legal demands of the law. And the means of our justification then, uh, the, the, the way in which we access it, Romans, uh, Romans 3.28, Justified by faith. 
we put our faith in Christ and that is the channel by which all of the blessings of justification comes. And so what we're picturing is in the law room or the divine court and the king looking upon us, even though the charge sheet has all of our sins, he declares us righteous. He declares us legally in his books as the divine judge not liable to have to pay any of those sins. And we say, well, how is that righteous? And we say, because I paid for them myself. Wayne Grudem just defines it like this. Justification is an instantaneous legal act of God in which he thinks of our sins as forgiven. Uh, that means determines, not like, oh, I think they are. No, uh, determines them as forgiven and Christ's righteousness as belonging to us. And two, declares us to be righteous in his sight. So there's the double, double imputation. Our sin is placed on Christ and his righteousness is placed on us. John Stott says as well, and it's helpful to remember this, justification is an eschatological event. It brings forward into the present the verdict that belongs to the last judgment. And that's why we get sometimes a bit caught up because we're justified now, or we saw last week, we're sanctified now, but we're sinners, we're similar, you know, et, similar justice, et peccatos, righteous yet sinful. Well, justification is bringing forward the eschatological, that is the last things. On the last day, you will be declared finally righteous. And it brings the verdict into our hearts now. Um, we, we actually stand legally righteous now. Um, even though the judgment will eventually come again in the end, if that makes sense. Um, and so justification is the glorious opposite of condemnation. Romans 5.18 Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. So... Oh, I mean, uh, we will all be judged. We're not judged now. Um, what, what it means is that on Judgment Day, we already know the outcome is what I mean. So we know, it's like we've been sent a letter saying, <laughs> not guilty. And then we'll, we'll go to court and then we'll be declared not guilty. But why do we have to go through the judgment? In the end? I don't know. Um, because God has determined that there will be a judgment for all. But he's given us the grace of knowing the outcome now. Yeah. Um, and so he's already determined the outcome and we get, we get in on it. And so it's so great that we get to know it now. Um, yeah, you were saying, Phil, Phil Johnson once said that we basically have the best lawyer in the um, <laughs> world because uh, yeah, he said the best lawyer because uh, he wants 100% of his cases. <laughs> yes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, and we get to know the verdict before we go to court. Yeah. Um, so, you know how Ecclesiastes talks about chapter 12, uh, in the end God's going to bring all sins to light. Mm. Um, and yet we recognise that in justification, the judgment is not guilty. Is there is it reasonable to say at the end of time, all our sins will be exposed and brought to light? Yeah, I've often thought about that. I th there's a lot of verses that indicate something along those lines. Like, you'll be held account for every last word. Yeah, Pastors will be held accountable for their task. 1 Corinthians 3, we will escape 
as the, through one through flames. And if we haven't built on the solid foundations with the good materials, we'll have nothing left to show for it. So I think there is a sense in which it's not like, okay, we're never talking about it again. I think there'll be, a, there'll be some way in which it's dealt with in, in all grace and all amazing non-condemnation, but still accountability. Yeah. And I haven't fully figured out how that will look, and I'm not sure we can fully know. Uh, but it does seem as though we will have to give an account, but it, it probably won't feel like being in the principal's office. Or the, you know, when you, you see the lights flash behind you and the policeman comes up, and you're like, oh, no. It's, it's, I think it'll feel different to that, but I'm not sure. Yeah, and often the accent is on the reward. Not So there's the accountability side, but then there's all these verses, well done, Abella, um, thinking of you'll be judged, and we're like, oh, no. And But actually where he's going is 1 Corinthians 4 is so you can be rewarded, mm-hmm. not so you can be slapped about. It's kind of where the confession part plays it. Like the more you confess, the more you understand what you can say from Yeah. And I think confession as a practice helps us to be sensitive to sin um, and to hate it and to kind of bring it out from the pocket and look at it again and go, oh, you know, I don't like it. But if we just, if we just, oh, I just forgive it, I'm forgiven, I'm forgiven. And just don't ever deal with it. We're less likely to see the horror of it. And confession enables, because of our present state, it enables us to apply again our justification to that particular sin. Because the sins, they, they do linger on our conscience. And so we need to, this is how we preach the gospel to ourselves, is we, we bring up sin and we don't hide it. We go, I did this, but I'm forgiven for it, and I move on. Um, rather than being like, oh, I think I did some wrong, and oh, I don't feel really good about it, and, oh, and we just kind of feel guilty, and then it just lingers with us. The joy of being a Christian is we can own it and then move on. Because we're forgiven for it. It, it doesn't stick um so we don't have to avoid it um which is endlessly applicable for family life uh, and work life and um, and just life we sin all the time uh, but we're not meant to walk around in condemnation we're meant to walk around constantly amazed at our justification Uh, and we ought to live like we're justified i think sometimes as reformed christians we can be a bit like I'm a sinner. And just so, so bad. And we just, and we're so focused on our, con, our deserving of condemnation that we don't live in the beautiful reality. Like, I'm, I'm justified. I'm washed. I'm cleansed. That doesn't stick. Oh, how good is this? And it liberates and gives life to the soul. And some of the things you say, which you really, sometimes more like that gospel is in some ways of the fact that going, they're always seeing happy and rejoicing. Yeah, yes. But they might not know why they're doing it. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> we know what we're doing. Yes. We should be like that. Yeah. yeah, and that's why Wesley was on to something. We have been redeemed from our sin. So we aren't slaves to sin anymore. We're not perfect, but we ought to be aiming for it and aware of the resurrection power within us to go after it and live in such a way. So in every not heresy necessarily, but in every wrong doctrine, it's, it's often just an imbalance. Um, and we can be imbalanced on the oh, side. Um, I certainly can. With justification comes assurance of salvation. 
Yeah, yeah. Um, there is one passage in Hebrews that kind of oh, yeah. confuses me on that. Which one? Hebrews 10 or 6? It says, like, if you um, heard the gospel and yeah. leave it then fell away, that, that, I don't know, kind of like... No more forgiveness of sins, it yeah. says, yeah. Um, that one often plagues me, and then I have to think about it again and, and look at it, and I, I think off the top of my head that that passage is probably referring to um, people that aren't necessarily Christians but claim to be. So it's similar to the sea. I think so. That yeah, it's to do with apostasy in a sense that um, what it's saying is if you uh, know the gospel and reject it, yeah, then there's no redemption for you for that. Yeah. So on the last day you won't be able to be like, oh, but I was in the church and I heard about it. It's like, well, there's the time for forgiveness was while you were alive, but now there's no more forgiveness of sins. Once you leave the church and reject Christ, well, there's no hope for you. Um, There's no second chance in that respect. I think that's what he means. I don't don't believe that people can fall away. Um, And that feeds into our next image. Um, Adoption. Uh, so, kids, we've done the marketplace. We've done the courtroom. God is judge and he declares us righteous. Isn't that crazy? Wouldn't it be great if all your mum and dad ever said to you, is you're righteous and good? <laughs> you're good little boys and girls. And wouldn't it be great if you were? <laughs> now we move into the household or the, the family room and we look at the third shun, reconciliation. Reconciliation. Household. Um, Personal testimony from me, without going into too much detail, sadly in my family history, without saying which side or whatever, um, there's alienation. Uh, There's a a side of the family we do not see. Um, And there's been attempts at reconciliation, and oh, how I wish... And we were just, Maddie and I were just talking about it, how I wish that it was different and that things could be done, but it's just a, a decade-long alienation and it keeps getting further apart. Um, and I wish that we could somehow bring everyone together and just forgive one another and restore things. Uh, but I guess in this side of heaven, it, it makes me just so grateful even more for the reconciliation we have in Christ. Uh, and there's no greater reconciliation than between God and sinners. The old carol, Hark the herald angels sing, glory to the newborn king, peace on earth and mercy mild, God and sinners reconciled. And you think of that, I mean, we hear it so often, but uh, there is, it's just incredible. We in our flesh hate God. We're in hostility to God. We think God is at best boring and at worst a whole lot of other things. And yet somehow in his grace, he has reconciled us to himself. Now that word reconciliation brings us back to that word atonement that we looked at last week. At one moment, to bring back into one. We were estranged and alienated from God. We were enemies and he makes atonement so that we can be at one with him. And reconciliation really is like the highest jewel of the gospel uh, because it, it gives us not just 
forgiveness of sins and freedom and hope of the future, but it brings us back into what we were designed for, face-to-face communion with God. Like Adam and Eve in the garden, um, they were able to walk with God uh, and they traded that in um, for knowledge of good and evil. But the gospel brings us back into that. Uh, so we have reconciliation between God and man through Christ. Romans 5.1 Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. So justification means peace. You can have peace with God because he no longer counts your sin against you. Romans 5.10 For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son, much more now that we are reconciled, shall we be saved by his life. So while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. He makes reconciliation with us. We don't approach him. He approaches us, which is just, oh man, because we never would. We never would have approached God. We never would have figured it out. And that leads us to adoption. Adoption is the highest point of reconciliation where not only we're no longer enemies with God, we are brought into his very family. Galatians 4, 4 to 6. But when the fullness of time had come, God sent forth his son, born of a woman, born under the law. So this is his righteousness so that he fully fulfilled the law to redeem those. We've already looked at that today. Those who are under the law so that we might receive adoption as sons. And because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. And we spent some time thinking of adoption in recent sermons, so I won't um, spend too long on this. But J.I. Packer says, Were I asked to focus the New Testament message in three words, my proposal would be adoption through propitiation. Three words. If that's all he got, adoption through propitiation. And I do not expect ever to meet a richer or more pregnant summary of the gospel than that. Which is sort of like a humble brag. It's like, I did it, guys. <laughs> Try and do it better. <laughs> um, but really, I mean, that's so much of what we've looked at over these past two weeks. Adoption through propitiation. He says, adoption is the highest privilege of the gospel. The traitor is forgiven, brought in for supper and given the family name. To be right with God the judge is a great thing, but to be loved and cared for by God the Father is greater. And the result is we have access. We can approach God with confidence. Ephesians 3.12 says, In whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. We can boldly approach the throne of God above. We can enter his most holy place. We can come to him as our father and we don't have to shield ourselves. We don't have to think, I'm not worthy. That's for the really righteous people. We can and should come to him as we are to the father and we have full access and he bids us come. Come, come to me, all who are weary and heavy laden. An application of reconciliation is access to God. A second one is community. Um, Reconciliation with one another. 
Ephesians 2.11 says, Therefore, remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh, called the uncircumcision, by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands, remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. That's who we were. But now in Christ Jesus, you who were once far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ, near to God and, verse 14, for he himself is our peace, who made us both one and has broken down in his flesh the dividing wall of hostility. Uh, And so there ought to be family in the church, as we've looked at in the past couple of weeks, that reconciliation with God means reconciliation with one another. And we see this most notably in the prodigal, or the, the, the doctrine of reconciliation in the prodigal father um, or the prodigal son story in Luke 15, where the, the son trades it all in, says, I wish you were dead, effectively leaves the home, squanders the wealth, comes back and says, make me a slave. And the father says, no, he runs out to meet him. He slays the calf for him. He clothes him in the best robe and he welcomes him back into the family. And then the reconciling father goes out to the estranged son who is frustrated and hates this and is self-righteous and feels like everything is against him. And he seeks reconciliation with that son as well. And it's both that both sons are reconciled or not. We don't know about the second son, but God the father is the agent or the initiator of reconciliation in both. So pulling it all together, we have the temple. That's propitiation. So we're, we're seeing blood sacrifice. God's wrath upon us is appeased and removed. We have the marketplace. That's redemption. We're freed from our captivity, captivity and slavery to sin. We have the courtroom, justification. We're legally acquitted of our guilt and declared righteous. We have the household, reconciliation. We who were once enemies are now friends with God. And friends, it's all God in all of these. Notice in all these verses, I'll give us four verses that ties all this together and notice who's the initiator. 1 John 4.10 In this is love, not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation. He sends the propitiation. Luke 1.68 Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, for he has visited and redeemed his people, speaking through of Christ Romans 8.33, who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. And 2 Corinthians 5.18, all this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself. Our propitiation, redemption, justification and reconciliation is all from God. It's all by God. And it's all possible through the substitutionary death of Jesus Christ on the cross for our sins. He was placed there so that we'd have all these benefits, that we would be free in Christ, that we would be righteous in God's sight and that we would be his sons and daughters. Well, Lord, we, how can we thank you enough? You're our boast. You did it all. You did it all. And we say so we love you. Yeah, we just want to offer our whole life as a living sacrifice in response, knowing that it doesn't earn us anything, but it's, it's just our glad 
offering. How could we give you any less than everything? Uh, because you have purchased us by your blood. You have declared us legally righteous and you have welcomed us in to your family. You are the best and we love you. Amen. Amen. Well, take a seat, guys. Um, if you have any questions, if you need to run, you can run, but I'm, I'm happy to keep going and, and do some question time if anyone has any more questions. Go, Nikki. Yes, I love it. Yeah, so we are freed from the penalty of sin um, and we're freed from the power of sin ultimately in that sense of we can choose righteousness, but we still have uh, the, the presence of sin remaining in our flesh. And so as much as we allow our flesh to rule us in our thoughts and our minds and we don't put it to death, it will. It, it's so powerful that it will constantly, like any... Any garden, you leave it for 13 seconds and there's a weed. And you think, Where did that come from? I just weeded you and put zero on you. Like the songs, the front, the front garden they had there, I can't, they put a weed mat down. I think they put a nuclear bomb in there and somehow weeds kept on coming up. You think that's a picture of our, of our, of our life. And so although it can feel like we're chained to sin, uh, what we're actually chained to is our habits and our mindsets and our frames and, and our instinctive learned responses that we've inherited and that we're brought up in. And so we are able to choose to be righteous, although we can never probably fully ever <laughs> turn every part of the, every motive of our soul um, into 100% obedience. So th- that would be um, part of the answer. It's like what you feed in a way. I think, yeah, so that's why we are to put off the old self, renew our mind, put on the new self. And we have to be doing that all the time because the old self just is accumulating, yeah. comes back. It's, it's, yeah, I would say this, the minute you would think you've won against sin, sin's won against you. Yeah, yeah. Constant vigilance. That's why we're memorizing Proverbs 4.23. Watch your heart with all vigilance, for from it flow the springs of life. Why? Because the moment you stop watching... Uh, it's gone back. It's just like, you, you know, if you don't watch a kid by the road, it's like suddenly they're on the road. Again. Like, How did that happen? It's like, that's just where you go. Um, and so uh, we're, free from this, we're free from the penalty of sin, but the presence still remains. And for some reason, that's how, God, how God's ordained it. He's made it such in that way. And it's a weird, it's a weird logical conclusion but you can only be as holy as God wills you to be right now. Because you're not in charge of your own holiness ultimately. It's the Spirit of God who sanctifies us. And so it sounds wrong to say, but there's sort of a logical conclusion, which is until God moves in our life for us to see our sin and our flesh and hate it, we can only be as holy as is, is his eternal sovereign plan for us at this point. Um, because if you've, not, if you've noticed, or oh, I've definitely noticed in my life, there's times when I think I'm good and then something will happen and you realize that 
fundamentally everything about how I was living prior to that realization was evidence of pride and arrogance. And I just wasn't aware of it. So if you ever asked me, I'm like, I'm pretty righteous, you know, which is a sign, you know, but even in your head, you think I'm doing pretty good. And then you learn some fact and you're like, everything. But what, what was the decisive factor? Well, it was the spirit of God in that moment chose to reveal that thing to help you realize that everything that you previously thought was righteous wasn't. But I couldn't have figured that out on my own. It had to be the spirit of God in that progressive moment of my sanctification to reveal it. Now, that's never to be an excuse for sin. Like, well, I'm not, sin- I'm not holy because the Spirit of God hasn't yet led me to stop doing that sin. It's like, no, we have the revealed Word of God. We know what is righteousness and not, and we ought to see it. But there is this sense in which until the Spirit works on us, and it's actually a helpful doctrine for our community sanctification. You can want other people to grow in their holiness, but until the Lord actually convicts them of their sin and they want it and God's working in that way, they just won't, they won't grow in it. So in the Bible says that we have a new heart or like a heart that's been changed. Yeah. Um, does that just then mean we don't die? Like is that what results from that? Well, we've been given a new, we are new creations, but we are to grow up into our salvation. So we're not mature in our newness of man. Um, and we will never fully mature until that day on the redemption of our bodies. And so there'll always be immature parts of our new creation until that day and where we're renewed in full. Um, and so we have been given new desires and we've been given new concepts and new taste buds and we can love God and all these things. Uh, but there'll always be immature parts of us that still want to go back and still think, oh, I just want candy for breakfast. And you're like, no. Have bacon and eggs or whatever, you know. Um, or probably something healthier, but anyway. Um, yeah, so the newness of our new creation, of regeneration, doesn't mean it, it should just be instantaneous. It's progressive. Um, so that's why Philippians 2.12 says, Work out your salvation with fear and trembling, for it is God who works in you to will and act. Um, and so it's a, it's a dual reality. It's both. We work and he works. Go for it. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Other questions or just to comment on that, there's a hymn that John Newton wrote that really oh, yeah. well. He's a great person to um uh, he's so good on this that, topic. I asked the Lord that I might grow. I asked the Lord that, that I might grow. Yeah. And because it, it captures the face of going John he asks God hmm. for um grace and faith and the way he gave it to him. Right. Was by showing the evils of the heart and get fit. Yes. Yeah. So, yeah, if you want to grow, be prepared for revelation of, of where you need to grow. It's like you look at a lawn and you think, oh, there's a lawn. That's a nice lawn. And then you look at it, you're like, oh, my goodness, there is 16 different varieties of grass and most of them are weed. From a distance, it looks so promising, but up close, oh golly, it's it's yeah. it's a weed bed. Yeah, yeah. It's like one of one of the biggest ones was he seemed to cross my bad design. Like it's like you, he's was trying to do something righteous, and it was like right, no, no, that's good. Yeah, John Newton is a very good writer. If you if you're looking for like a a doctor for your soul in a book. Just anything by John Newton is gold. The guy who wrote Amazing Grace, he's incredible. So I highly recommend. I Other... want to go into your promise. Sanctification is in the Lord. 
like not full, but progressive. Yeah. So the reason element where we can believe in faith that be progress. progress. Yeah. Yeah. So we behold yeah. Jesus Christ and are conformed to His image from one degree of glory to the next. Yes. So it's sort of like a big cruise liner, slowly turning. <laughs> it's moving, but imperceptible at times. Yeah. But if you look back, hopefully, if you think back to a decade ago, you should be, though you may be, you should be less selfish now than you were then. However, part of the growth chart of the Christian life is that the more holy you become, the more sinful you realize you were. And so you can, at the same time, be growing in holiness and feel more depressed about your, because you realize the gulf that was there and you're like, oh, and so it, it sort of always makes us feel like we're losing. Um, because we're getting closer and closer to perfection. But what's actually happening is, yeah, like we've moved from stick figures to, you know, using, you know, textures. And we're like, that's a better picture. But then we, the more we like art, we start looking at better and better art. And, uh, and it's the same in our life. We start to, we look at God and we actually see him in his holiness more and more. And so it, then it makes our little textures like, oh, that's pathetic. And then our oil painting, like, that's nothing. And then, you know, whatever your watercolor, you know, huge, you're like, and you still compare it to the best. And you're like, it's really nothing. Um, but if you compare your oil painting to your stick figures when you're a new Christian, you're like, this is a lot better. Like I have progressed. But when, you, when the standard's Da Vinci or, you know, was he a painter? He was an inventor, yeah. Or uh, Monet or something like that. Anyway. Because Da Vinci did the Mona Lisa. Yeah, of course. Yeah, I just had a brain. Was Paul's thorn in his flesh was a sanctification? I'm sure there's books as high as this room trying to figure out what the thorn was. But it seems as... Yeah. Yeah. Oh, my God. I had a bindi. Have you ever felt... No. Um, uh, whatever it was, it seemed as though... And it seems as though God, whatever it is, uses trials to purify. Um, and so, yeah, the design is that it, it purifies. Yeah. Yeah, so we ought to... Every day sort of live like a Wesleyan. I can be holy today. I ought to pursue this act of of parenting or business or neighborly love or household dynamics as if I can do this righteously and perfectly because I have the spirit of God in me, but aware that it's likely not going to be at the full standard of God. And so being prepared to humbly admit when we don't get it right. But we ought to live in that confidence. Like, all right, I feel really, 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 really tired right now. And I don't feel like I can do this without sinning. Yet I am a child of God. I have the Holy Spirit. So I'm going to go and do it and trust that God will meet me in it. And yeah. Other questions? Kids, you got any questions at the back there? I'd love to see your drawing. So I've got a question. I don't know if it is a question. Or maybe we'll see him at the end. Or probably something on the strap. This is, a, is this a mature age student question? <laughs> I have a question. 13 paragraphs later. <laughs> it's a statement. Sounds a bit like what I'm going to do right now. No, you go for it. Um, well, probably it's more of a struggle uh, that I kind of go through in the sense that, yes, I know that I'm justified. Yeah. Right? Um, 
pure in the sight of God because of what Christ has done. Yet there is, you know, sin that recurs. Mm-hmm. You know, and it's like, yes, I've done it! And then you come back into that. And then you're like, oh, you know, yes, I've done You know, it's a, it's a constant repeat. And so when it's constantly repeating, yeah. you're at times struggling in your own heart, like, where am I with this? You mm. know, like, it's a constant repentance and asking for forgiveness again, but that struggle of, like, where, like, am I, you know, I am justified. You know, yeah. that, that battle in your head goes on. Um, yeah, so I, don't, I don't know, I don't think it's a question, but I guess... Well, it's a wrestle, yeah. and... What we've got to do is not base our justification on our sanctification. So we, our legal status before God is not determined by our present state of sanctification. Our justification is based on our justification. We're declared legally righteous. We're, we look at Christ's work on the cross and his passive and active obedience. And we say, that was fulfilled in my place for me. That's my justification. And then we base our sanctification. This is Tim Keller, Ed Clowney, on our justification. Because I'm righteous, I want to live righteously. And so rather than basing our justification and our sanctification, we base our sanctification and our justification. Um, And so don't let your performance today determine your position before God. On on the recurrent sin, I think part of growth is actually just recognition of sin. And it still is growth to recognise, oh, I haven't fully liberated myself from this. I'm still a jealous person or greedy or whatever it is. And to realize that probably until the day we die, we will probably struggle with the exact same sins we struggle with this very day, just in different varieties and different forms and different temptations. But hopefully as we grow, say if, say if, the, say if the sin of greed had a hundred you know, steps to it and you started off at one or like um, if you started on all, you fulfilled, you knocked over all 100 pins. Or oh, that's going to be a positive. You meant to knock over the pins. <laughs> Hopefully bit by bit, instead of committing 99 out of 100 of the things of greed, it's, it's 80 and it's 79, 78. And it's getting down, it's getting down. You're still greedy, but you're less greedy and you're less greedy and you're less greedy and you're aware I was greedy earlier and you repent quicker and you apply the gospel faster. And so our growth is not always, well, nothing was knocked over. It's like less were knocked over and I was more aware of the damage it caused. And so having that as part of the the thing, like Jerry Bridges, who pursued holiness his whole life, shared at age 80 at the pastor's college that he, the biggest sin he struggles with is lust. And you're like, come on. Oh, no, that's not good news. Because how can you be 80 and still be struggling with it? And John Piper says the same thing. But it's this old flesh, habitual desire and met with a human physical ordinate desire of of sexual gratification that we're born with from God. So there's always going to be temptation to sin. Um, And so we're never going to be rid of temptation. It's what we do with it. And then to what degree we go into it. And so maybe when you were outside of Christ, you were sleeping around. But by the time you're 80, a thought comes and, you, and you're now so sanctified that even the desire to want to sin, even if you don't sin, feels like sin to you. Because you're like, ah, oh, 
I just wish I was completely free and totally pure and never even wanted sexual immorality with another person or whatever it is. And so your degree totally changes, even if the category still remains. How do you know I think the community, sanctification is a community project and so you, you, you're asking people and I think that's how, yeah. That's why we try and share evidences of grace. Mm-hmm. It's because we're so blind to our progress and we're the last person to see it. Yeah. And then we need other people to be like, wow. And, that, and that's why homes and ought to be communities of grace where you want the dominant, and I wish it was more like this in my own home, flavor to be encouragement. Mm-hmm. You're doing better. By God's, you know, like it's, because the condemnation is the easy bit. The encouragement, that's the hard bit. Um, And people are so aware of their sin, if they're humble, they need way more encouragement than they need condemnation. Yeah. 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 And that helps lubricate the the whole process as well. I don't know, does that... That wasn't a question, so... Like, you can't judge my answer. <laughs> <laughs>